to the CUNY Lecture Series. In this edition, hello young writers. What's Colin McCann's advice to aspiring writers? Write. The Hunter College Creative Writing MFA professor reads two pieces, a letter to a young writer and his short story, What Time Is It Where You Are? Going against the common advice to write what you know, McCann leaves young writers with this, write towards that which you want to know, better still, write towards that which you don't know. What an incredible thing to be um, to be introduced by one of the greatest writers, not only of our times, but all times, Mr. Peter Carey. Thank you very, very much. <clears throat> and what a great thing to be um, a colleague of his in this great place. Um, Chancellor Milliken, President Rabb, uh, Tom, Peter, all the teachers, all the students, all the donors who have made this this program possible. Um, this is, uh, for me, a very special night. Um, I always feel that when I'm here, there's an Irish phrase that says, you're in your grannies. <laughs> it means you're home, and you can do whatever you want. You can even wear your hat indoors. <laughs> I thought of a line when Peter was messing with the hat. There's a line by Jim Harrison that says, uh, under the storyteller's hat, there are many different stories, most of them troubled. It is a real honor to be here. I'm going to begin with reading from my iPhone. Isn't that terrible? I swore, I swore I'd, uh, in my life I'd never read from my iPhone. But here is a little thing that I've been working on recently on the web. Um, it's called Letter to a Young Writer. Um, and this is just the first entry of different entries that I give uh, every single week. Letter to a Young Writer, Alarilka. <coughs> Do the things that do not compute. Be earnest, be devoted, be subversive of ease. Read aloud, risk yourself. Do not be afraid of sentiment, either, even when others call it sentimentality. Be ready to get ripped to pieces. It happens. Permit yourself anger, fail, take pause, accept the rejections, be vivified by collapse, try resuscitation. Have wonder, bear your portion of the world. Find a reader you trust, trust them back. Be a student, not a teacher, even when you teach. Don't bullshit yourself. If you believe the good reviews, you must believe the bad. Still, don't hammer yourself. Do not allow your heart to harden. Face it, the cynics have better one-liners than we do. Take heart, they can never finish their stories. Have trust in the staying power of what is good. Enjoy difficulty. Embrace mystery. Find the universal in the local. Put your faith in language. Character will follow, and plot, too, will eventually emerge. Push yourself further. Do not tread water. It is possible to survive that way, but impossible to write. Transcend the personal. Prove that you are alive. Have trust in the staying power of that which is good. We get our voice from the voices of others. Read promiscuously. Imitate. Become your own voice. Sing. Write about that which you want to know. Better still, write towards that which you don't know. The best work comes from outside yourself. Only then will it reach within. Restore what has been devalued by others. Write beyond despair. Make justice from reality. Make vision from the dark. The considered grief is so much better than the unconsidered. Be suspicious of that which gives you too much consolation. Hope and belief and faith will fail you often. So what? Share your rage. Resist. 
denounce, have stamina, have courage, have perseverance. The quiet lines matter as much as those which make noise. Trust your blue pen, but don't forget the red one. Allow your fear. Don't be didactic. Listen to me being didactic. <laughs> don't be didactic. <laughs> make an argument for the imagined. Begin with doubt. Be an explorer, not a tourist. Go somewhere nobody else has gone, preferably towards beauty, hard beauty. Fight for repair. Believe in detail. Unique your language. A story begins long before its first word. It ends long after its last. Don't panic. Trust your reader. Reveal a truth that isn't yet there. At the same time, entertain. Satisfy the appetite for seriousness and joy. Dilate your nostrils. Fill your lungs with language. A lot can be taken from you, even your life, but not the stories about your life. So this, then, is a word, not without love, to a young writer. Write. I suppose that's what so, some of what we, 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 we tried to teach here. Um, I've been here a number of years. I've got to say I love this place. I haven't come upon students in any other uh, uh, university or college uh, that feel so, so much that they, they, they want to be part of this world, that they're non-entitled. Um, and I think that system has been put in place by President Rabb um, and everybody else who, who is here, but in particular Jennifer has been very, very good to us. So we're lucky, and we've been, been able to, to foster a whole generation um, of young writers. And I always told my students, whatever you do, don't ever like, write about yourself. Right? Just try and get away from yourself. So I'm going to read tonight a story uh, which is uh, absolutely about myself. <laughs> This always happens in life. You say something, you go, do it this way, and then you turn around and you do it com completely another way. Um, it's um, a short story uh, in 13 Ways of Looking. Uh, it's called What Time Is It Now, Where You Are? Uh, and um, it's about uh, 15, maybe 20 minutes long. And then we're going to open it up uh, for questions afterwards. And uh, thank you all so much uh, for coming along. Yeah, I swore I'd never become a character in one of my stories, and maybe I am or maybe I'm not. What time is it now where you are? One, he had agreed in spring to write a short story for the New Year's Eve edition of a newspaper magazine. An easy enough task, he thought at first. In late May, he settled down to sketch out a few images that might work, but soon found himself struggling, adrift. For a couple of weeks in early summer, he cast about, chased ideas and paragraphs, left a few hanging, found himself postponing the assignment, putting it to the back of his mind. Occasionally, he pulled his notes out again, then abandoned them once more. He wondered how he would ever push into the territory of a New Year's Eve story, create a series of fireworks, perhaps, drop a mirrored ball in a city, or allow snow to slowly scatter across the face of a window pane. All the beginnings he attempted scribbled down in notebooks, wrote themselves into the dark. Two. In early summer, he landed on the idea that he could perhaps defy his own notions of what a New Year's Eve story could achieve and tell a military tale. Perhaps the portrait of a soldier somewhere far away, a young American, say, in a distant land. He could find himself, say, in a barracks on New Year's Eve in 
Afghanistan, say, the simple notion of marine, let's say a young woman, slightly exhausted by war, sitting on the edge of a valley in the cold, surrounded by sandbags, in the vast quiet looking eastward under a steel mesh of stars, all silence, not even the throp of machine gun fire in the distance, the grim perimeter of the soldier's reality set against the possibility of what might be happening elsewhere, say, at home in say, South Carolina, say, a relentless suburb of no great distinction, say, a house gone slightly sour with the ears, say, a broken drainpipe hanging down from the garage, say, a boy in the driveway, a young boy, in a striped shirt and torn jeans, with a bicycle lying forlorn at his feet, her brother, or her cousin, or perhaps even her son. Yes, maybe her son. Three. Looking out into the Afghan night, although it would be better to be specific and she could be facing the gothic dark of the Kerrigan Valley, maybe even the ridge over Loi Kaloi village, she would draw herself into the savagery found at the outpost of every war, several layers of black pressing down on the already dark mountains, an area where even the stunted trees might seem to might seem as if they want to step off the cliffs and hurtle themselves to the valley floor, the darkness made again more visible by the layer of frost covering everything, the sandbags, the steel rebars, the machine gun, a browning M57. The impossible stretch of distance, the enormity of black sky, with everything so cold that the young marine, let's call her Sandy, wears a black a, a balaclava over her face under her helmet and the tip ends of Sandy's eyelashes have frozen and her lungs feel thick with ice and when she looks through the small gap in the sandbags her teeth chatter so much that she's afraid she might chip them a personal dread since Sandy is hip heavy and small breasted and unpretty in her own eyes and 26 years old and feeling every single day of it but proud of her strong white teeth so that when she takes the upper lip of the balaclava and stretches it down across her mouth, the fabric tastes hard and rough and synthetic against her tongue. 4. Sandy sits alone in her rocky outpost. Unlikely, of course, but he knows a few marines back in New York. You know who those ones are, right? Phil Cly was one of, one, one, one of our students. I actually consulted Phil for this story. So Sandy sits alone in a rocky outpost, unlikely of course, but he knows a few marines back in New York and he has heard their stories and he is well aware that reality so often trumps invention. So he justifies her aloneness with the idea that a New Year's Eve party has taken place in the village barracks below and Sandy has agreed to give the other marines a break that she will take the post alone for an hour while midnight tips over, while, she, while the ball drops distantly, because everyone in Sandy's unit knows that Sandy is decent, Sandy is cool, Sandy knows the score, and let's be honest, Sandy likes her privacy, and she has been given special access to a satellite phone that she can use at the stroke of midnight, since who wants to be alone on New Year's Eve without a way to at least call home and say, and what is it that Sandy is going to say? He has, he must admit, no idea yet. 
What he does know is that the sense of cold seclusion is important, not only because it is a New Year's Eve story, but because it freezes Sandy in her cube of human loneliness, like most of us at the unfolding of a year, looking backward and forward both. Not only that, but the reader must begin to feel the cold that claws Sandy up there on the 308-metre ridge, so much so that she or he must almost inhabits the very trees that want to step off the edge of the cliff. We should feel our own eyelashes freeze and clench our cheeks to stop our own teeth from chattering because, like Sandy, we have something we must see or understand or at least imagine into existence far away and we too have a distant hope that Sandy will say something into her satellite phone, perhaps not a resolution, but at least a resolve of some sort, a small parcel of meaning. Though he still has little idea of what exactly she might say, she's beginning to come a little more complex for him, which he's grateful for since deadline is approaching. And he has to have it finished by mid-October at the latest, and he hunkers down for three or four days in late September in his apartment on 86th Street in New York, though he can still somehow feel the cold seeping in from the Afghan hills, and he wants now to capture the essence of what it feels like to be far from home, to be in two or three places all at once, and the simple notion that what we really need on New Year's Eve is a sense of return, whether it is to his own original Dublin, or to Sandy's Charleston, or to his New York, or Sandy's birthplace, which is, say, let's say, Ohio. Though Sandy, of course, could be born just about any place, but Ohio feels right. Let's say Toledo. So, eight, five. This he now knows. Sandy Jewell is 26 years old, from Toledo. She lives in the South. She's a Marine. She perches in her camouflage more than 1,010 feet high in the debilitating cold, wearing a balaclava, looking out into the Afghan dark on the eve of the New Year, about to dial a loved one on a satellite phone at her side. He wonders what might happen if, once a year ago, there were three space heaters in the same lookout, but they leaked out a light so that a sniper took out another marine simply by lining up the shot in the centre of the heaters, a perfect mathematical triangulation, an incident Sandy might have been aware of when she volunteered to take the outpost, adding another sense of dread to the story. Perhaps it could happen again, a leak of light from her satellite phone this time? After a few days, he decides against this image. It would be far too simple to embrace the ease of death by sniper fire, and what sort of New Year's Eve story might that be anyway? The essence of Sandy's story has begun to place layers upon layers, though he does not know yet who the loved one is or what might eventually exist between them. Still, a certain mystery has begun to join things together. Six. What Sandy sees, or what he imagines Sandy can see, the boy lays his bicycle down in the driveway, somewhere suburban, a Legoland of houses on the outskirts of Charleston. It's mid-afternoon in mid-America, eight and a half hours behind Afghanistan. He is a tall, thin, handsome boy. Let's say he is definitely her son. The desire to talk must be immense and the potential for tragedy must be real. What might happen if she doesn't get to talk with him? What happens if the line goes dead? What happens if, if a shot rings out in the night? He is 14 years old. Tricky, of course, since Sandy was earlier established as 26 years old. Is he really her son? Is that feasible? Is it even possible? The boy lifts the corrugated garage door, his heart thumping in his blue and white striped shirt, and he hears a shout from inside the house, a woman, let's call her Kimberly, trilling out to him, let's name him Joel. 
to say, Quick, Joel, your mum's about to call. And Joel is late. He knows he's late, and he's old enough now, almost 15, in fact, to have a sweetheart and to know some things about the complexities of loss. He has spent an afternoon with her down there near the school bleachers on Lancaster Street. He has pledged himself to her. He will be with her later tonight when the real clock, the American clock, strikes midnight. But first he must talk to his second mother in Afghanistan from the kitchen of his first mother's house. And though he calls Joel his second mother, and he has only known Sandy for four years, he has scrawled an ink tattoo inside his wrist K and S. Joel hurries through the house, slings his jacket across the kitchen table, yanks up a chair, glances at at Kimberly and says, while he stares at the gaps in the hardwood floor, what time is it now where she is? Seven. Sandy sits in the dark, wearing a watch strapped to the outside of her wrist over her tan Nomex fireproof gloves, waiting for the countdown. There have been problems with the phone signal in the past, dropped calls, endless ringing, failed satellites... It is too early yet to call, but she keys the phone alive anyway and touches the ridges of the numbers in rehearsal. Out beyond the outpost, nothing but the dark and the white frost on the land, the stars themselves like bullet holes above her. 8. He wants desperately to create gunfire across the Afghan hills or to see a streak of light that is not just a metaphor, an RPG perhaps, or the tip or the zip of an actual bullet into one of the sandbags, to force a tracer line across the reader's brain, to ignite alternative fireworks on the eve of the new year, and to increase the intensity of the possible heartbreak. But the simple fact is that the Afghan night remains quiet, no matter what he imagines, not even the howl of a stray dog or the faint hint of voices in the outpost. At two minutes to midnight, Sandy drops the balaclava from between her teeth and leans across to pick up the satellite phone once more. He has an inkling now of what she might say to her son, or rather, Kimberly's son. Sandy clicks the flashlight on the front of her helmet, thumbs the phone on forcefully. The front panel lights up. She's been given a code. She takes off her gloves in order to dial the numbers precisely. She has a botched tattoo of her own on the flap of skin between her thumb and forefinger, the initials of someone else's name from long ago. She does not think of him anymore. It is midnight in Afghanistan and early afternoon in South Carolina. Nine. He is writing this almost, last part, now in France where he is travelling after a book event. It is the middle of September and deadline is looming. Some things he knows for sure. Sandy will not die. She will simply pick up the phone, she will dial through, she will call her lover and her lover's son and she will simply say Happy New Year in the most ordinary way and they will return the greeting and life will go on. Since this is what our New Year's Eves are about, our connections, our bonds, no matter how inconsequential, and the story will be quiet and it will slip its way into its own new year. 10. Inside the kitchen on North Murray Avenue, Kimberly stands at the counter with her hands webbed wide, waiting for the call. Spread out in front of her is the prospect of a feast, chopped peppers, onions, a half pound of oysters, a cup of cooked shrimp, tomatoes, sprigs of thyme, lemon, lime, olive oil, salt, three cloves of garlic for the boulebets she has planned. Kimberly has placed a second wine glass at the end of the table, She is 38 years old, tall, slim, pretty, a university professor. She aches for the call. She has not talked to Sandy in a week since just before Christmas when they argued about the length of Sandy's tour. The call itself became a distant memory, a barely remembered pulse. 
Kimberly listens to the wine gurgle against the side of the glass. This, to her, is the essence of the season, the loneliness, the longing, the beauty. She reaches for a spoon, and she begins to stir. 11. It is late September, and he is seriously deadlined now. But he is struck by the notion that this story is endless. He could stay with Kimberly, or he could return to Afghanistan, or he could slide into the past, or he could follow Joel down to the bleachers with his sweetheart later tonight. Let's call her Tracy. Or he could descend the hill to where the other Marines are having their party, or he could follow the path of a satellite, or he could go back to Sandy's original lover, or he could summon in the snow to swirl across the night. He is in Normandy by the sea, the waves ribbon and buckle on the shores of Etretat. Twelve. He cannot get this phrase out of his mind, the living and the dead. Thirteen. How is it that a particle of voice gets transmitted down a telephone line? How is it that Sandy summons up a simple phrase and the muscles in her throat contract? How is it that Kimberly hears a sound and already her hand is moving through space to reach for the white kitchen telephone? How is it that Joel feels a pang of desire for Tracy? What exactly will those bleachers look like at midnight? And who, by the way, is Joel's father? And what is it that Kimberly teaches in university? Did she meet Sandy on a college campus? What might Sandy have been studying? And when did Sandy move from Ohio? And did she join the Marines after a breakup? Was she married before she met Kimberly? What is that initial tattooed on her hand? Does she want to have a child of her own? How is it that a voice travels halfway around the world? Does it go through underwater cables? Does it bounce off of satellites? How does a quark transmit itself to another quark? How many seconds of delay are there between Kimberly's voice and Sandy's voice? Could a bullet travel that distance without them knowing? Could there now be a death at the end of the story? Are there any female engagement teams in the Kerrigan Valley? Is there even such a thing as a Browning M57? How private is this phone call? Who might be listening in? Can we create a brand new character so late on? Let's say an agent in Kabul, a malevolent little slice of censorship, eavesdropping in on Sandy. Can we see him there with his headphones, his heartlessness, his bitterness, his rancor? And what about his own childhood, New Year's Eve's in Dublin? Could he disappear back to them? What was that song his father used to sing? What about those days when he used to run out in the Clonkeen Road at midnight, banging saucepans to ring in the new year? What about that sense of promise the Januarys used to bring to his boyhood? But more important, and perhaps most important, what happens to Sandy when she gets through on the telephone? What sort of feeling will rifle through her blood when she hears Kimberly's voice? What great desire might arc between them? Or what sort of silence might hollow itself down the telephone line? What will happen if they argue once more? Will Sandy describe the bunker where she sits? Will she try to articulate the darkness? Will those fine teeth chatter in the cold? Will Kimberly open up and immediately make her young lover laugh? Will the white wine disappear from the glass? Will she talk about the boulebets? Will she even use the word love? And what will Joel's first words be to Sandy? Will he tell her about Tracy? Will he tell her that he will go down to the bleachers tonight? Will Joel's father, let's call him Paul, living up north in a college town in New Hampshire, a biologist and anti-war activist, ever hear of any of this? How many years has he been estranged from Kimberly? Has Sandy ever met him? How long will the phone call eventually last? What happens if the satellite suddenly fails? 
Where will his own children be this New Year's Eve? How do we go back to the very simplicity of the original notion? How do we sit with Sandy in her lonely outpost? outpost? How do we look out into the dark? And who, anyway, was that dead Marine? Thirteen reducts. The phone rings. It rings and rings and rings. Thank you. You've been listening to the CUNY Lecture Series. For more, visit CUNY Radio online at cuny.edu slash radio. The CUNY Lecture Series is a production of the Office of University Relations.